What's up, everybody? This is Laura Ellen from Woe Mongols. You're joining us for part two of my conversation with Alan Wares of the Albion Roar, a podcast covering Brighton and Hove Albion of the English Premier League. We're talking all things English football, from financing to fandom. If you haven't already listened to part one of our conversation, be sure to check that out. Thanks, as always, to our sponsor, Roughneck Scarves, and of course, our host, the Beautiful Game Network. All right, that's enough for me. Let's join the conversation. The things that has come up a couple times is kind of where the money's coming from. And so based on what you've said, my understanding is that there are owners and funders of these clubs that, that provide money, but then there's also money that is coming from the league, coming from um, you know broadcasting and, and things like that. So, so is the majority, especially for Premier League teams, is the majority of the money coming from the, the Premier League, or is it coming from the funders, or um, you know, we have it's coming even... from the broadcasters. Okay, it's coming from the broadcasters. Sky TV are the ones who pay. <clears throat> excuse me, the vast majority of it, and we're talking about um, you know three, four, five year contracts that are worth billions. I mean, Brighton, for instance, just for being in the Premier League, gets one hundred and ten million pounds a year from the broadcasters and then there's additional bonuses and things like that the only difference every club gets the same the only difference being is the performance related um pay which depends on where you finish in the division as to how much you're going to get then there's extra bonuses that you'll get if you're playing in the european competitions the money comes from uefa and they to get their money for the large part on broadcasters and then every single individual club then has to sell its own advertising its own marketing its own sponsorship um and they can get the money that way and obviously the, if you're manchester united you can you know you'll have an official toothbrush of the of manchester united or you have an official <laughs> you know um you'll have an official glass of manchester united and absolutely anything that if anything that's not nailed down can be sponsored um so and, can I get and, an and official can, Brighton tattoo on my forehead? Is is that acceptable? Where do I get that? You wouldn't believe the thoughts that have just gone through <laughs> my head now. Please don't. Um, although I am looking forward to seeing you model your your Albion hoodie that you've I know you've just ordered. So yes, yeah. um, I think it'll look very dashing on you. And in a cold place like Pittsburgh, I think it'll be good. So, um, yeah, so the, the money comes in from a, a variety of sources, like I said, the majority of which is the broadcasters. I think I don't think the Premier League per se pay them. What happens is the broadcasters pay the Premier League, who themselves then distribute the money to what they call their members, which is basically the 20 clubs in any given year. Gotcha. Yeah. And and I think that's like an important thing, and, and we've talked about it a little bit, but um, this idea of not only is, you know, this, especially the top teams, right? And again, those are the, the vast majority of people who, in the U.S., from my perspective, but the vast majority of people who follow, follow English football uh, in the States really are looking at those top six teams. And so mm -hmm. um, for them, it's often um, not just about the Premier League play, but then it's about Champions League play and some of the other tournaments. And so, um, I mean, you know this, and, and most of our uh, listeners know this. I'm a huge FC Barcelona fan, and um, as uh, Iniesta has uh, left the team, which is uh, heartbreaking for so many people. Stop crying. I know, I know. I, my tears are slowly drying. Um, but, Your tears um, are crocodile tears. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And um, right. so, so, right. So, so Messi is now the captain. And so he has come out and said, you know, our focus as a team, as a club this season is 
um, the Champions League. Uh, and so there's been all these conversations that um, for these top teams, and especially teams like you know La Liga that tend not to have uh, much competition towards the middle or, or lower portions of the mm. the, the top uh, division. Um, you know the focus really isn't on winning La Liga. I mean I think Barcelona could win La Liga. You know again with their second string, like uh, you know save for quite, maybe a yeah, couple games. Point. Right, but certainly, but okay, but now it's time to focus on the Champions League. And so do you feel like you ha- there's the same kind of um, perception that it's like for these top teams, hey, we're, yeah, sure, it'd be great to win the Premier League, but winning the Champions League is kind of like a, a bigger trophy for us or, or a better trophy for us. I think we have to bear in mind in Spain, culture in Spain, the certainly of, of football supporting is, is in Spain, and I've heard this from many fans in Spain, is that you support either Madrid or Barcelona and your own team. But I think once you get beyond that, then you're into uh, clubs where, um, you know, they, they can get five, 6,000 people at home and they don't also have the away support. You know, with, with, with for instance, with Brighton, all right, nowhere is more than 350 miles away. Newcastle is the furthest away and we'll take 3,000 to every game. In Spain, they'll take... 10 people, not 10,000, they'll take 10 people to an away game. So the culture there is different. So when Messi says um, our, our focus is the Champions League, one, he's talking to the Barcelona fans because they're piqued at the fact that Real Madrid keep winning the Champions League. So he's, he's, he's it's a political message he's making. Two, if he really is that case, and it's kind of insulting to La Liga, and if Barcelona on breakaway and form their new Premier League, that's fine. But their fans are going to get fed up of actually having to travel, if they want to, to their away game, which might be the next one's in Paris, the next one's in Athens, the one after that is in London or Manchester. And they, instead of travelling a couple of hundred miles to their away game, they've got to go 1,500 miles <clears throat> so i cannot see a european league working the culture here where there's a lot more um uh loyalty to your team again i can't see manchester united fans week in week out going to rome to madrid to porto to athens where they're spending thousands to watch their team knowing full well that actually in the area they're in their you know their, their away game is only 20 miles away um, so I think Messi is, is, is making, one, a political message, but two, if he's genuine in that, he's actually insulting the Spanish national division. Yeah, no, no, certainly. And I just, um, you know, it was something that that I had heard on, you know, mm. on the news. And I was just like, oh, that's like an interesting thing that I hadn't really thought about. And, you know, from my perspective, you know, winning your national league you know or your home league um as i like to think of it right is 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 a big deal right um but yes it is yeah um no here it is i i can't well let's put it this way if anyone said if if a manchester city player or a liverpool player whatever said well actually the priority is the champions league i think they'll be certainly scorned not only just by a lot of football pundits but possibly by their own fans actually they want to see their team win in the national title yeah yeah which is it's just i mean i think that's that would be an interesting thing to kind of go back and Ooh. and look at you know who are the winners of the champions league and and what's that anyway that's a whole other conversation um that's my researcher mind going going into full gear there um uh-huh. one of the the questions and, and you talked a little bit about this with some of the the big teams are the wages of the player players and this is something that 
has kind of come up time and time again um, in, you know, in American uh, football or in soccer here in the U.S. is, is thinking about, um, okay, so how much are these players actually making? Um, is it a living wage or is it not? And so um, what do kind of wages, you know, if, if we, we take aside, you know, maybe the top six teams that are just, you know, paying like, you know, millions and millions of dollars to some of these players, um, you mm. know, what do wages look like kind of across the, the, the uh, divisions of English football? Um, well, we, we hear wages that are reported, but then, you know, what does that mean? Let's suppose in a given player is on 30 grand a, a week. What does that mean? Is that pre-tax? Is that post-tax? Is that part of bonuses? Is that part of an ongoing contract? You know, is there a, you know, what, where where does that 30 grand come from? We don't know. We, you know, once you get into the strata of, of what Manchester City or Man United play, and it might be sort of 150 grand a week, different thing entirely. I couldn't tell you what the, the average wage is, only what what people are reporting and on a certain level provided that a club is well run within reason i say i don't care what they're on i care that they offer value for money not just in terms of playing football for but for the community it's great that we have a decent player but for instance at brighton i think it's so important and so vital that actually those players are part of the community and by which i mean they help with album the community um programs that we have and I'll, i'll explain that sort of later but also do things that actually that actually are good to promote the name of Brighton Hove Albion, you know, in, in terms of going to see the disabled teams or going to train with the disabled teams in terms of going to visit hospitals in terms of um, going to the opening of an event, the, the various things which actually make those players accessible to us. You have a certain level of hero worship. You have a certain level of uh, social responsibility as a player and, and as a person. Um, so where the, where the wages come in, that's obviously a matter of personally for me, I think it's a matter between the club and the individual. Um, but I'd also like to see that that player represent their worth. Now, how you can put a value, a monetary value on that, I don't know, but on so many levels, so many people would appreciate the likes of Lewis Dunk, of Shane Duffy, of Dale Stevens, of Glenn Murray and so on. And, and various Albion players who would actually go out into the community and be representative of something that's actually has the potential to be such a force for good and by and large to my mind i think they do do that once you get to manchester united's level i don't care (laughs) yeah no and i think i think that's an interesting uh perspective on that and um i would i would i um want to ask you about academies and and kind of the academies in the sense of you know developing the next generation of of football players but then also um in engaging with the community and so what do um academies look like um in england okay well again i can only talk about brighton's which has got um you know tier one status so it's actually probably one of the is is a brand well i say brand new it's been open about four or five years but it's they because (laughs) bear with me here because we had so long in campaigning for our stadium we actually were able to spend a lot of time getting things right first time as much as possible and the lessons we learned from building the stadium and then the academy which was which is built about 11 miles away and actually just around the corner from me which is brilliant um the 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 facilities were put in place tony bloom our chairman and owner was able to actually fund it he said you know get me the best possible um facilities but just get me the best price for it 
And so he was able to do that. And so we have an academy, which is, I think they call it a pathway. And this is for, for men and women, for boys and girls, is that um, from the age of six, they, they um, nurture the football talent in various structured ways. And, and there is actually an Albion Raw show from about a year ago where one of the coaches within the academy explains how it goes. And I can point you to that at a, a, a later date. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to actually explain it in one fell swoop, in one hit is, you know, like trying to explain a car crash. You, you <laughs> cannot do it. Yeah. Um, so are the player, yeah. Are the, the players that you're pulling from, are they, local like are they from so so pittsburgh so the river hounds have a, a really excellent academy and they've worked really hard um uh and they do very well you know especially on our girls side um so we don't have a women's team but um on our on our girls side especially like our uh you know, U16, U17, U18, that range, um, mm. you know, wins constantly in there, you know, and they're, they're doing really well and, um, you know, going um, into a top uh, division schools, um, which is kind of the pathway in the U.S. is to currently play in high school and then play in college and then uh, go uh, into professional soccer if, if that's what you choose to do, which, you know, there, there's a whole other show about that. But um sure. But um, so so the Riverhounds Academy has had a lot of success, um, and typically most of the players are kind of pulled from the greater Pittsburgh region. Is that the same uh, for Brighton's Academy, or is it kind of from all over? Yeah, no, it has. There, I think there are rules in place about um, the 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 distance limit from which a player can be pulled. I'm, I'm not sure. I, th I think it's either 50 or 70 miles. I'm not sure. And this is where we have other issues where, for instance, Manchester United's academy, which is which has been historically very good, they've had it where they've offered to move the entire family because they see this 14-year-old wonder kid coming through. They'll move the entire family to the Manchester area. Um, I'm not saying the Manchester United have done this, but it's the kind of stunt that, that others have pulled. I mean, it's, it's other, other clubs across Europe have done it. Um, well, they're offered to, to move the entire family, uproot the entire family in order that they can then adhere to those rules. So, yes, that excuse me, there is a, a, a distance limit from which you can actually acquire new talent. Um, I couldn't tell you exactly what it is. Something tells me it's either 50 or 70 miles, which for us is quite good because of where we are. That encompasses London. London is within, you know, 70 miles of, of Brighton. So we could actually get kids from there. <clears throat> but apart from that, you can't just necessarily go and grab some kid from Italy or from Spain um, and then bring him over because that's outside the rules. Right. Well, and certainly, you know, like, you know, in all fairness, you know, uh, La Masia brought Messi from, you know, Argentina to Spain, right, when he was quite young, mm. um, you know, and look what we have now. Um, and from my perspective, certainly the best uh, soccer player of all time, but we can talk about that later. Um, so do all clubs have academies or is it no. just, okay. And so no. are there rules about having an academy or? There are supposed to be, and again, I'm not 100% up on that. I mean, some have better academies. Southampton, for instance, has an excellent academy and has actually, you know, brought forth some some excellent players over the years. The, the one who springs to mind mostly at the moment is Gareth Bale, um, but they've 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 brought out several decent players. Manchester United, certainly in the early 90s, I mean, they had a hell of an academy, and it was basically the vast majority of that team, you know, ruled Europe for for six seven years. Um, Arsenal have always had a very good academy. Um, yes, you are supposed to have an academy, but 
you know, not not every club throws in all the resources that it could or should do and would therefore prefer to actually acquire its talent through buying them rather than nurturing them. Uh, for Brighton's part, we've always had an academy, but well, it's not been called an academy. It's been kind of called a youth setup. But now we are actually in a position to set up a, a proper academy um, and not just of learning football, but in terms of education, in terms of life nurturing, in terms of life skills, in terms of social awareness and all these various things, which... Uh, go towards you know because if you're spending your time only playing football you're not going to get to learn about the world around you so there's various education programs you know actual proper schooling within the, the academy which says how you're going to you know learn in life so if you don't make as a professional you're not going to be handicapped by not having had a proper education yeah no and i think and i think you just raised an important distinction so the riverhounds academy isn't um you know, it doesn't do like the schooling component. So the the players who are in um, the the academy for the Riverhounds still go to their own schools, right, uh, for their schooling, mm-hmm. and then they come to to um, the the stadium to you know do their trainings and thing. Well, to the to the academy um, training ground to to do their trainings and things like that. Um, so I think that is um, an important distinction mm. there um, that. And, and so, right, and so just to give some context for our listeners, so the Major League Soccer, which is our, our first division here, MLS, requires that all MLS teams have academies, and certainly different academies have uh, different levels of success with that, um, and there is the incentive to uh, really, you know, to what you're talking about, nurture your players with mm. some of the homegrown advantages that um, MLS tries to incentivize, right? raising up these players through your academy and then having them play on your first team. Um, and so, you know, I think about um, the Philadelphia Union, which is uh, the MLS team that uh, Justin and I follow. And, you know, uh, they certainly have a really robust academy and, and have sure. done this on, on numerous occasions. So so I think uh, that's, that's really exciting. Um, and so for me, this kind of uh, evolves the conversation into thinking about um, the connectedness of teams. And by that, I mean, uh, so here in the States, we have um, MLS teams. So in the first division who have affiliations to to varying degrees. So there's either uh, there's there are two teams. So typically they're their development teams who play in the second division. Um, mm-hmm. And then coming up next year, we'll, you know, some will play in the third division um, or who have uh, more uh, loosely defined affiliations with um, second division clubs. And again, I should say um, and I should remind folks that as of right now, we don't have relegation and promotion as you do in English football. We don't have that here in the States. And so um, my question to you is, um, are there, you know, connections, are there affiliations or relationships relationships oh, i can't talk this morning um would you, between... like, would you like to borrow my teeth <laughs> no thank you um and then uh between you know top division teams and lower division teams uh in this country um from england to england absolutely not um and what's more i don't think the fans would buy into it um that's officially there is kind of nominal half winks i'll give for you for instance you've got the likes of three ex-manchester united players gary neville um uh, Phil Neville and Paul Scholes, who bought into, oh, sorry, in the fourth one, Nicky Butt, who bought into a team called Salford City, who play in about the sixth or seventh tier. Um, 
and you know full well that if necessary they will have the links and what have you to to expand up to Manchester United but we're talking about such a major leap that it's not going to happen now there are clubs for instance Barcelona B and Barcelona C play in the lower divisions in in Spain and there are it does happen across uh, Germany um with a, a a limit on the promotion now they have automatic promotion and relegation in Spain and Germany however those B teams and those C teams are not allowed to be promoted beyond a given um tier which i think in in spain is the third tier um i personally am very much against the whole affiliation and notion things like that i think that there are one or two premier league clubs have an affiliation with a club in australia or something like that certainly no club to club in england not to such an extent that it will stifle that smaller club's uh possibility of being promoted um i personally find no value in it but then that's the nature of the culture in England is, is that we have such loyalty going down the divisions uh, into the local realms that to actually be for your local club to be part of a bigger club is actually just something that's so undesirable. For instance, Worthing, which is it's about three miles from where I am. It's about 10 miles from Brighton. If for the sake of argument, Brighton wants to affiliate with Worthing, Worthing will probably tell them to do one. So. Uh, and, and I think that probably the vast majority of Brighton fans would do that and, and Worthing, but it's just not desirable. It's just not wanted. Is that being overly insular? Is that being overly parochial? Maybe it's just what it's, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, no, and and I think, you know, and I think with the the kind of history and culture and, um, you know, especially, and you know, with that in mind, but then also with this idea of relegation and promotion that the lower division teams do have, a, you know, there's a chance, right? And it's, it may not be a mm. good chance, but right, there's still a chance to to be promoted to move up into the, the upper divisions, whether, you know, a team would ever get to the Premier League, or, you know, if they would um you know just make it to the second division still like there's a chance for them to move up and so um i think you know with yeah. that context in mind well, it, it yeah, makes no, total sense we have that clear and, and and um have to have that clear and open opportunity i'll give you another for instance about three or four years ago um just because england were doing so badly i think we, we were poor at the world cup we were poor at the european championships in 2016 um, we lost to Iceland for crying out loud and Iceland, you know, they only have 300,000 people in the entire country and we lost to them in the uh, second round anyway. And so there was this sort of madcap idea that the premier league or the FA had that <clears throat> teams could have their second team in the sort of like fourth, fifth tier of, of English football. And there was an enormous backlash against it. And it was, it was incredible as to how much, much so they, there is a there but then there is a, a a cup competition that is played between the teams in the third and fourth division it's not much of a, a trophy it's not much of a competition but it's between 48 teams and it's on a uh, initially a league and then a knockout basis and what's happened is is that some teams have put their academies or rather all premier league teams were invited to put their academies into this particular competition uh brighton have done so i'm i was not in favour of it, although I can understand the reasoning that uh, Brighton have done so, it's to see how well their under-23s are going to cope against first-team um, players who have the experience of, of, of playing first-team football for, for several years. Um, but in order to have it in the league, no, there was, I mean, there was, you know, howls of protest. And even now you get to realise just how unpopular the notion of having an under-23 or effectively a kind of a junior side in this competition and where previously these games might have attracted, say, four or five, about half of what they would have got for a league game 
now they're getting about a tenth of what they got for a league game because the there's almost, almost like a backlash. There's a protest about it. Um, so it's really not a popular idea. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I think I think that makes sense. I, I do think it's important to, to give as much um, exposure and as much experience to young players as you can, but also at the same time understanding that, um, you know, for some of the smaller clubs who they're – their first teams are in the lower division, right? Like this is their team. This is, you know, this is their club. Oh. And so um, it feels, um, you know, a bit, uh, I don't know, marginalizing. That might not be the right word or uh, well, patronizing. Any, any, team that, any Premier League team that's put their, their juniors, they're under 23 into a league situation against um, first team uh, players devalues that league because those under 23 players are being used to actually see how they compete against, you know, the, the the established third and fourth division first team sides. So it doesn't. It actually queers the picture of the entire competition. You know, to have, you know, you know, uh, twenty four teams in the league of which eight are under twenty three only, and the rest are are actual sort of all blown professional, albeit for smaller clubs. It queers the pitch for the, for the entire division itself. You'll have a limit on how much the under-23s can be promoted. And it's also not a draw. I personally am not, not that fussed about watching Brighton against, you know, if I were, we were in the fourth division, I wouldn't be that fussed about watching Brighton versus Coventry under-23s. It's really not a draw. So, um, and it's, 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 it's an idea that sort of is, is floating around in the background like a, an age-old blow-off from last night's curry. But I don't <laughs> think, I think largely... Uh, it's going to be dissipated into the wind and, uh, and and the birds can have it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so we've talked a lot about English football and, and this has all been really fantastic. And so I was just wondering if you could um, talk to me and, and again, you have been a Brighton fan your entire life. Um, and so watching... Not yet. Brighton, well, certainly. Um, so <laughs> so um, your, your, your entire life thus far... Um, so you have watched uh, your club make its way through the lower divisions and um, mm-hmm. make it into the Premier League. And so I was just wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what that experience was like for you, um, you know, watching uh, your club and, and what that means to you. Oh, blimey. Um, I will start crying. Um, I do remember when we got promoted to the top division before. This isn't our first stint in the top division. Um, we got promoted in 1979. Um, and we spent four years in the in the top division in, until 1983 when we got relegated. And from 83 onwards, you saw, certainly for the next 15 years, you saw this appalling, you know, as I said earlier, English football and English society as well. I mean, uh, you know, it was a societal issue, but, you know, the government was happy to blame the fans um, and blame football and therefore legislated against it. And we're still suffering that you can't drink beer inside alcohol inside of a football pitch. You can do it for rugby. You can do it for cricket. You can't do it for football. This is how ridiculous it is. Yeah. And I think I should just, you know, highlight that, uh, you know, for our listeners, right. So before uh, Riverhounds games, uh, you know, we have this wonderful opportunity to have $1 beers before the game. Right. And so, um, you know, could you imagine what a $1 beer is like? Uh, well, it's not terrible anyway, but, um, uh, you know, but could you imagine, uh, Riverhounds fans not being able to drink during, uh, uh, Riverhounds games? I just, I just can't imagine. Anyway, please continue. 
Sorry, there's something quite spiteful about being having to watch the Albion sober, believe me. Now, the weird <laughs> thing is, is that you there the weird thing is is that within the concourses, I mean you could argue, you know, there's twenty-nine bars within that stadium all selling actually pretty good beer. Now it's not one dollar stuff, but you know, it's selling pretty good beer. So you're actively encouraged to drink beer before the game, just so long as you can't see the pitch, as if looking at that pitch you know, will suddenly turn you into this raving lunatic monster that's going to rip everyone's head off. It doesn't work that way. And and this is a draconian throwback to the Hillsborough tragedy. And if you're not sure about Hillsborough, look it up. It was something where the authorities blamed the fans, whereas finally, and it took 27 years to actually get to the truth, they realised that actually it was the authorities that were at fault in the first place. I digress. Football was not in a good place in the 80s and 90s, and, and, and Brighton was very much a microcosm of that. Because when we saw through the trapdoor of having a, a board that didn't care about the club they sold the ground from under our feet um you know they told lies about it and that was effectively a fans movement um we had something a brilliant idea <clears throat> in 1997 called fans united there was a 15 year old plymouth argyle fan um, who came up with the idea of everyone coming to the albion for one game our old place at the goldstone for one game but wearing their home shirts that their club's shirts um, to support the Albion in their plight. Um, because, you know, this was a team that 14 years previously had been in the first division that had been at the FA Cup final. And people were thinking, if this could happen to Brighton, it could happen to anyone. So we had 10,000 people that day, of whom there must have been about 70 or 80 different club shirts. And you had rivals, Wolves and West Brom, Arsenal and Spurs, Liverpool and Manchester United, all standing next to each other in solidarity to support our plight and that was a kind of a magic day and that's when we realized actually we were onto something so when it comes to you know like i said earlier we were two years at gillingham 12 years at withdean and bit by bit by bit we could see that we had the the the, the groundswell a very much a community based a very much a bottom-up um swell of getting the club back on its feet when we look at the stadium nowadays we think every single fan who took part, who who organised, who protested, who campaigned, who wrote letters, who signed a petition, everyone who did that, and not just Brighton fans can say, we did that. that all right, it took Tony Bloom to pay for it, but we did that. This is our monument. If you would seek our monument, look around you. So when it came to in the promotion that we had on the last day of us being at Withdee in our temporary home of 12 years, um, from the third to the second tier, Glenn Murray scoring goals then, and then he went and played for Crystal Palace, but that's another matter again. So when it comes to being at the stadium, we've had three of the four years we were, we, were, we got to the playoffs. Sorry, three of the first six years at, at, at the new stadium, we got to the playoffs and we made a complete pig's ear of being in the playoffs. Um, so when it came to 2016-17, where we'd missed out, we were 15 points clear of our, our playoff rivals and we still lost to them. Um, that's how ridiculous the playoffs were. We were we were on the same level of points as the team that got promoted, but our goal difference was less. So <clears throat> we thought, is this going to be a backlash or are we going to kick on? The following season, we kicked on. We should have won a championship. We choked at the last three, but we, we got promotion with four games to go. Let me tell you what happened that day. We were playing Wigan Athletic. It was uh, Easter Monday, 2017. It was a grey overcast day, a bit like it is now. If you can look out of my window, three and a half thousand miles away, you'll see how grey it is. Um, we beat Wigan 2-1, and it meant that we had enough points to go up, and only Huddersfield could catch us, but their goal difference was about 30 worse than ours. So even if you know Huddersfield won all their games, they still couldn't have overtaken us by goal difference. 
So our game finishes and Huddersfield are playing Derby later in the afternoon. The nature of the staying around at the at the Amex is that people are encouraged to stick around, have a few beers. I mean, in the vast majority of stadiums, if not all the stadiums, the game's over, people leave, they go home, they go to the pub, whatever it might be. At the, at the Amex, just because it's out of town, we stick around with new beers. There must have been about 10,000 people who stuck around. Some to watch the game, some just to see. Because we'd had our pitch invasion. We had, an, Even though Paul Barber, the chief, has actually said, do not come onto the pitch after the game. Do not have a pitch invasion. We stuck fingers up to that and we had a big pitch invasion. <laughs> it, gets the last, it gets the last minute of Derby against Huddersfield. Huddersfield are 1-0 up. Derby then equalise. You have not seen the place go quite so mad. And with that, the final whistle's gone. Derby and Huddersfield have drawn. It means that we've gone up. We can't be caught in points total. Never mind goal difference. There's another pitch invasion. We're absolutely partying on the pitch. The players are partying on the pitch. There has already been a party booked in town for the players. And to get to town, they, they thought in taxis. They couldn't get taxis. They got on the train. There were players and fans getting on the train back into town. And the players were crowd surfing over the, over the fans <laughs> on the train. As they got off the train, they were carried shoulder high from the station down the hill into the town. It was this almost huge triumphant march. Steve Sidwell, who's since retired from football, said he got promoted with Reading. But that was like a McDonald's tea party in comparison to the party he had in Brighton. So that's I'm, I'm, I'm trying to paint a picture here of Brighton being a party city. And when we party, good God, we party. <laughs> and, and, it was, and it was great. And, and I until about three in the morning um if anyone says they remember what happened that night they they weren't there um so it was that good um and then we had three games of which then to get three points in order to to seal the title and we made a complete pig's ear of it we didn't care we were on the beach we were partying and so when it came late you know three or four weeks later to a victory parade people saying Oh, what? You had a, a victory parade for finishing second. No, 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 no. We had a victory parade for the fans' effort over those past 20 years to, to pick us up from the gutter where we were lying with our faces down over the drain manhole to get to the Premier League. That's what our party was for. Yeah, yeah, and and thank you. You you tell the story so well, um, and it's just. And oh, it's, if you were there, you wouldn't need to. You just say well, you just sit back and smile, puff on a cigar, and say, "Yeah, we were there." <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think um, you know. Uh, and again, you know, you mentioned I'm reading Brighton Up, which kind of goes through this journey, and I haven't gotten to that you point in the book it. yet. I am. I am very oh, much yeah. enjoying it. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll have to talk about it. Um, but um, you know, it's it's just it's very clear to me, and you know, in talking to you and in reading this book and and you know the other things and research that I've been doing with you know my new fandom of of Brighton. Um, just the <laughs> importance of the fan and the community and right supporting your local club, and I think that seems to be a theme um, in our conversation. And so uh, you mentioned it earlier, um, Albion in the community. So can you talk about how? Brighton has kind of given back and, and how the club has, has given back and how it continues to um, support community efforts. Because at least for me, this is one of the really fantastic things about this club. Okay. I mean, the Albion community was set up in about 1992, something like that. Um, initially to just to 
help people out who lived in the community you have to bear in mind that for those who know the city of brighton and hove the goldson ground used to be in hove um which is the the kind of the the twin town just immediately to the west of brighton the the stadium that we're at now is in kind of on the northeast corner of brighton so there's a lot of hove based projects and they included helping disabled people or running the women's teams or wheelchair teams pretty much on a shoestring budget but there was there was kind of community helpers that 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 really ran this um have to fast forward i guess to about uh 1997 a fellow called dick knight comes in takes over from bill archer who had sold the goldston he's kind of our hero he, he and effectively he is the man who saved brighton i mean if, if that's if anyone wants a legacy then then that's dick knight he's he's the man that saved the albion um he was very much a promoter and advocate of albion in the community um it's it's tricky to sort of like give the the whole history because it's something that's grown as the club has grown so it's probably easy to talk about it now um in terms of just how vast it is it is the community it's sorry it's the charitable arm of the albion and it has so many projects which include um getting back to work uh disabled uh helping pe- disabled people across the city people with learning difficulties people with mental health issues people with um uh uh, various um, physical issues, including cancer awareness and uh, uh, or, or any, any sort of, uh, you know, sort of lamentable, you know, medical ailment. Um, we're talking about um, social inclusion. We're talking, there's so many various aspects and facets of it, including, you know, running various football teams. We have a power chair football team. We have an amputee football team. We have a deaf football team. We have a walking football team. We have a cerebral palsy football team. We have a Down syndrome football team. Um, and this is taking away from the fact that it's set up the women's football team, which is now its its own club in it, effectively its own club in its own right, albeit part of Brighton and Hove Albion. Um, to to actually try and explain it is to, to underestimate its vastness and how many people are affected positively, you know, week in, week out, month in, month out. Um, and it's run by, I mean, people who, who work for it, but it's also run by ex-players who will run social inclusion programs uh you know kids who are off the straight and narrow who need a bit of focus who need a bit of help um parents who need a bit of help um oh crikey i mean it's 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 so big and it works across the county we're talking about tens of thousands of people who are positively affected by what albion communities do i'll probably finish answering you'll ask another question i'll remember something else that albion community does So it's not just sport, it's about education, it's about social inclusion, it's about um, welfare, it's about well-being and, and all the various things that the club can can do for, for the community. Yeah, and I just, um, you know, like I said, as I've been, you know, learning more about not only just the first team, but then also um, about the rest of the club and about the community and, and all the things that happen, uh, you know, and that, and that are done to support the community and to ensure that, um, all fans are able to have a part um, and to uh, participate uh, in their fandom and in their support of uh, not only the first team, but kind of this idea, right? Like it sounds like very much of like, this is the idea and this is who we are as a community. Um, and, and I think that's just um, just really fantastic. Um, so without the community, Brian and Hove Albion wouldn't exist. It's 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 very much a, a two way street. The community needs needs the Albion. The Albion needs the community. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so my final question uh, for you today um, is is a bit of a is a kind of a bit of a flip here. So, what is your perspective of American football? Um, like, what do like what do, I don't know? Like, just broadly, what do you think of of uh, soccer in the U.S.? So little perception of it. I mean, once upon a time, it used to be just the, you know, the ex-footballers graveyard. They, they, they go there for the last couple of years just to earn a few quid um, uh, before retiring and then coming back and opening a bar or or squandering their, their ill-gotten gains on birds and booze kind of thing. So, um, but that's a kind of historical thing. Um, it's, it's, it's tricky. Seeing as we have, you know, obviously such a, a good quality division that we're in and we can watch the Spanish football or French football, German or Italian or whatever it might be that kind of, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the football in, in America is kind of a little bit put aside. That said, the games that I have seen, and I know that um, what's his face is Latin's playing over there and, and, and Rui is playing, and which, you know, kind of highlights my point a little bit. Um, yeah. There's some, <laughs> there's some great players there. I just wish that, you know, if, if America was really serious about taking football on, and I understand that it's kind of more of a, a middle-class game in America, whereas here it's the traditionally a working-class game, um, that actually it was going to take it on more seriously. And like I say, you're in a major, major city like Pittsburgh, and because it's only a second-division side, you're not getting the crowds you should do. I mean, you told me earlier in a city that's you know sprawls over to, over to about 1.5 million people, and you're getting crowds of 0.1% of that population. That means that somewhere down the line, not only does the football have to improve, but also the PR within how football works. And you cannot therefore be allowed for the MLS to hog the whole limelight because if you're not part of that, it's interesting you're saying you have two teams. You have Pittsburgh and you have Pennsylvania. It's like the notion here, you know, before Brighton got to the Premier League, who do you support? I support Brighton. No, but who's your Premier League side? At which point they get their, their you know, they get thumped into the middle of next week. How dare you? No, I'm Brighton. I'm loyal to that. So it's not a criticism of the fact that you're actually supporting two teams, but because the MLS has the amount of sway that it does in comparison to the divisions below it, it means that those divisions below are going to struggle to, with the PR and with the, the things that are needed to actually for them to be sustainable beings in their own right. Um, so that would be my main concern is, is when you talk about your, the size of the, the, the river hounds, what it sounds like to me is on the equivalent of about a tier five club in this country. And that means it's got to be a lot more um, community involvement in order for it to grow and sustain itself is my take. But that's from 3000 miles away. No, I mean, I, I think uh, I, I think you've really um, captured it quite succinctly, um, you know, and, and, and I, it is, you know, and this gets into a whole other thing. And again, something that <laughs> that um, the guys over on Mongols have, have talked about you know, quite frequently is just thinking about what does it mean to support your local team? And, you know, there certainly are um, folks uh, here in Pittsburgh, right, who uh, they only support like Manchester City and they're like, well, City's my team. And I'm like, okay, but you have a team right here that you don't have to, yeah. you know, wake up ungodly early on, on Saturday morning to watch, <laughs> right? Um, you know, you can watch, you can go to a game and see this team live. And um, anyway, so, you know, I think it is, I think that was a very astute observation. Um, but the point of the, sorry, I do have to make an additional point to that. And, and you, you might not appreciate this, but it's probably therefore down to the likes of the Mongols and the Woe Mongols podcast to actually 
spread the message you know the, the the further that you can reach into the pittsburgh community the further you can reach into the football community within the city and the further and, and however you do it i don't know I'm, I'm not necessarily au fait with the entire culture of how you could do that but i would say that you have a certain not responsibility but a certain manner of which you could actually do this and help that and 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 it's probably going to become because it's got to be a, a grassroots a bottom-up affair it's probably down to the likes of yourself and similar-minded people to do that because the club and the the usl and the mls and what have you are not going to do it for you yeah no and 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 i appreciate Sorry. that point no no not at all i think you know i think uh you know mongols and well mongols we're doing what we can i also think the steel army which is um the uh river house that doesn't it steel yes. army uh well we're we're quite a group of people um but you know they have done a lot as well to really engage sure. with uh people who uh, come to games and then, you know, being incredibly welcoming uh, before every game, uh, you know, for listeners, we have a tailgate before every single game. Um, and we welcome all people to come and join us, have a beer, have a burger, have a hot dog, um, you know, and uh, if I make you know, a suggestion then, can I just throw this one out at you? Certainly. Okay. Um, I mean, how, how big in your mind is the steel army? How, how many, how many numbers are we talking about roughly? Oh, I, I have no idea. I mean, I think probably, okay. you know, our section probably has from like, a, I don't know, like 75 to 100 people. Okay, fine. That's a decent sized weeks. army. The point I would make about that is, is that therefore, I mean, and I don't know my way around Pittsburgh, is that it's, and we're back to the kind of the whole notion of how Albion community started, is that you guys go in there with your yellow and black shirts and with your your banners and what have you, and actually go into the communities and actually help with community-based events in whatever form is required. Um, I, I can't think of off, off something offhand, but if you know of a group or a club or a children's or a, sorry, a youth club or a sports club or something like that, if you go in there and say, look, you know, can we help you and, and have your events and fundraising that way? And from that, you will get a certain level of loyalty. You're not buying the loyalty, but you will actually get to realize that the, the, the river hounds are actually part of the community. And from that, you'll get then further community involvement. It's just, sorry, my first thing that sprang to mind is that's one of the ways that Albion community is, is, is a source of pride locally. And therefore people are actually then really seduced by that whole idea of how the community can work together. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's an excellent point and, and we'll be sure to, to pass that along. Um, well, Alan, thank you so much for spending time um, talking with what? me. Do you have any, uh, where can people find you online, uh, on Twitter? Uh, where are you on the internets? Where am I in the, on the internet? I'm, I'm there. I'm everywhere. I wouldn't, be, you wouldn't <laughs> believe where I am. But if you want to find us on Twitter, that's at Albion Raw. That's A-L-B-I-O-N-R-O-A-R, Albion Raw. Um, you'll find us, oh, you won't find us on, on FM because um, our FM signal doesn't extend that far. So, so you can find us, if you go to radioreverb.com, uh, listen live at midday UK time. So it'll be 7 a.m. your time. Um, in fact, as we speak and as we record this, I know that we're on air now. How are we doing this? It's magic. Um, and you'll also find our podcast on audioboom.com uh, and just search out the channel Albion Raw. But you can also find us on albionraw.co.uk and all our podcasts will be on that. It's basically an hour of Albion-related natter um, with the odd sort of dose of silliness thrown in. 
That's it. A huge thank you to Alan Wares of the Albion Roar for sitting down with me to talk all things English football. Well, what did you think? Reach out on Twitter at WoMongols or Mongols. We'd love to hear from you. As always, thank you to our sponsors, Roughneck Scarves, and the Beautiful Game Network of Podcasts for hosting the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you very, very soon.